I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. I don't care. That's it. You could put a blowtorch to my ears or eyes or whatever and still can't help you. There's no evidence, there's no police evidence or whatever. No one can tie me in with a murder weapon, you know? Don't hold your breath waiting for me to call. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. It's series six, episode number two, and we are here in Boston Sound with a brand new case for you. Producer Dan, how are you doing? Oh, I didn't think you'd come to me first. That's I'm mixing amazing. Up. Oh, I'm mixing up. Wow. I'm feeling great. How are you? Yeah, I, I am doing well. Thank you very much, sir. And he's still here. We think he's stayed here for the past week, sleeping on the sofa. Here it is Ben. How are you doing, Ben? Feeling good. Looking good. We made it to 50 episodes. Can you believe it? Wow. Is, is that including minisodes and stuff? or If you want to add minisodes, then that takes us to around 130. That episodes. is crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? On Patreon. Yeah, sorry, on Patreon to clarify. But oh, yeah. there's also, that's not including the break episodes as well and the specials and the live streams. So we're probably around 145. Oh, well, there you go. But you're 50 in terms of the main long eps, right? Yeah, the big chunky eps. The big yeah. chunky eps. That is, that is, yeah, that is quite a milestone, that, Ben. It's a big milestone. It is a big milestone. Big, big milestone. If that, yeah. Yeah, that, the mile's gone and the stone was there. And we're like, that is f- fairly sizable. If you threw that at a car, it would leave a big old dent. But that's what I've got from that anyway. Spot on. Thank you very much. Jacob, is, he's moved places in, yep. the, in the studio today. Oh! There he is. Uh, me supporting some merch, merchandise. So yeah. if you want to look as cool as Jacob, <laughs> head to ICMAP.store. And a big thank you to our friends at Gully Gums who have taken us from the East Coast of America 
to the west coast of Australia. Down under. Down, down, down under. And familiar territory for us, Tom. We've done a few Australian cases before. Cafe Night, the Snowtown murders, the Pajama Girl murders, the wrongful conviction of Andrew Mallard. Which is one of our older episodes, actually. They're always, always super interesting cases. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's no difference. They're always super interesting cases over in Australia, Tom, and this week's is no different. And people would argue this is the most notorious of cases to happen in Oz. Absolutely. This is one that's been requested a number of times, both on our main channel, social media, Patreon, everywhere. People, people just in the streets, aren't they? People, Best, ben, do Ivan Millet! You're like, all right, I'm just going to the butchers to get a pound of sausages. A hundred pounds of sausages. No, just a pound of sausages. Oh, yeah, yeah that's For you. more reasonable. Yeah, not get a hundred pounds. No. We hope everyone enjoyed last week's uh, series premiere episode, uh, the Richard Ramirez Night Stalker uh, episode. That was that was fairly bleak, wasn't it? And as Ben said, Gully have kicked us out in the clothes, and we're very much an Aussie vibe with our shirts. Yeah. Down on a bit of golf, a bit of golf over there. Golf, I've got beer on mine. Got some gold for the Gold Coast, you could you could, you could say. Yep, you can indeed. And also, don't forget that we're having a little bit of a battle over on Gully Garms. If you can use the code Kill Ben. Or kill Tom for 30% off in the store. Yeah, guys and girls, vintage Ooh. products, festival season. Yeah. Uh, we're in the peak of it right now. And why not stock up for next festival season? Yeah. And as well, you know, we, we like to dress a little bit garish, but there is a little bit more understated items on there as well. So yeah. you don't have to be as in your face as we sometimes got some dresses. nice brands as well. I'm oh, told. they do. Not they, really do. Brand. they do. I'm the unbranded man, traditionally. But I don't think anyone's ever called you that. Some people have. I think you're just more, you just wear certain brands a lot of there. Boohoo. Giacomo. Fuck off. What? Giacomo all trades. Massive thank you um, for everyone telling their friends George. about us. Asta. Go on. Massive thank you to everyone um, sharing the podcast, um, mentioning us in their stories on various social medias. We really appreciate it. Telling your friends, telling your families, telling strangers about Telling foes. Telling foes. Yeah, why not? Rekindle that arch rivalry. Here you go. Listen to this podcast about, oh, shit. You go, yeah, I got you. You can kind of, you know, really it suck works, it to yeah. them. Yeah. But yeah, no, excited for, for this week's case. It's an interesting one for sure. I feel a bit conflicted about certain aspects of it, but we're going to get into that. But um, And I'm very interested. Dan, I'm, I'm imagining, Dan, you're not too aware of this case? I am not. So yeah, I'll be interested to hear your point of view about some of it as well. Before we start, though, I want to say we can either go two ways down this road. We can either call him Ivan Milat, yep. which is more commonly what you hear on every podcast or documentary talking about it. But Bill Ivan, his brother, said everyone has been saying the name wrong. Oh. And it is pr- pronounced millet, millet. That's the thing. So I, one of my questions to you was going to be before we, if we hadn't done any research into this case, it'd be a shocking episode. Obviously. It'd, be, it'd be dog shit. It'd be bleak. White dog shit. Yeah. Resting in the hot summer sun. But if we hadn't done the research, how would you be pronouncing his name? Because I was looking at Yvan, Yvan Milat, but it's, that's not what I'm going to go with. But before. I, I was at Ivan Milat. Like, Ivan like Millet. Millet's, the yeah. shop. Shop, but yeah. I would say Ivan Millet, Milat, sorry, Milat. Milat, yeah. Ivan Milat, Ivan Milat. We're going yeah. with Ivan Millet. I think we do Milat. I mean, you say fuck you to the brother. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's so, do that. Ivan Milat, the backpacker murderer, the backpacker killer, backpacker Bill, and Australia's most notorious serial killer. Or the hitchhike killer. Ivan Milat, the backpacker killer. He also yeah, he gave himself many a name, didn't he? Many, many different aliases for, for Ivan. A whole lot of names. <laughs> That's not even the tune of Hollow Love. 
it's always quite interesting when people kind of give themselves names. We were saying about last week how Richard Ramirez was pushing Jack the Knife. Yeah. Um, but he hasn't given himself the names for the actual, uh, he, he very much thinks he, he claims he's innocent. But mm-hmm. you know, like when you're a kid and you want a nickname. Yeah. I think he wanted to be called Tex. Tex, yeah, that uh, really made me chuckle when I, when I learned about Tex because there's the very famous images of him with the cowboy mm. hat and the, the ammunition belt mm. around. I don't, I'm sure that's not the technical term. Ammunition belt sounds pretty good. But yeah, that image combined with the fact that he was preferred to be referred to as Tex. Reminded me of Tex, Texas Pete from Super Ted. Oh, it reminded me of um, Michael's friend in Alan Partridge, the guy that I believe also goes by Tex. Oh, so just the guy's name, the same as that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh. Yeah, he gave himself the name Tex, but we're going to go into the childhood of Tex, a.k.a. Ivan Millet, and we're going to see what formed this man to be Australia's most notorious killer. But before we jump into this week's case, we wanted to say a big thank you to this week's episode sponsor, our good friends, Manscaped. Now, we all know in the UK it has been particularly hot the heats are rising and the sweat is building up in your pants, eh, Ben? I think collectively all of our pants have been, you know, but particularly been hot and humid. really muggy. I, I feel like the whole population were affected, not just me. Okay. Um, Any tips? What has Manscaped armed you with in order to help these, the sweat down there? Oh, my The stink. Camera. Not the stink. Okay, sorry, the sweat. Thank you. Which is usually accompanied by stink. No, I, I, the weird thing about me, Tom, is my sweat is completely odourless. You say that about your farts and they do stink. Kira, anyway, your pants um, are their odourless. <laughs> It's pretty good thing. Yeah. <laughs> really skinny dick. <laughs> so not only have they got the crop reviver, Tom, they've also got the crop preserver, the ball deodorant, and those two together combined. Woof. So let me picture this, Ben. You use the lawnmower 4.0. Yeah. So you completely completely shaved down there. Completely. Then you've gone to a really hot barbecue. And you've got, oh, it's going to be hot. I'm going to be probably by the barbecue. You're talking to the guys, trying to look like I know what I'm doing. So are you going to use the crop preserver to, you know, like ball deodorant just to kind of keep it? So you keep yourself from sweating. You don't want to yeah. get wet socks when you're talking to the guys there. Don't so usually wear socks, to be honest. But, oh, okay. But still. Yeah, it's not a puddle. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So you're using that. So you're feeling fresh. You're feeling ready. Feeling yeah. confident. Mingle, ready to mingle. Talk to the crowd. People go. The crowd. What's that smell? It's only the crop reviver. It's Ben's balls, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. Smelling better than ever. And not only that, but they are well packaged in the Manscaped 2.0 premium boxes. Tom, we've talked about the regular Manscaped boxes, mm. best boxes we thought ever made, until they came out with the 2.0 gold lined, gold lined penis pouch. There you go. Royal jewels. The family jewels. Yeah. Some people call them, but yeah. I call them royal. Yeah. Just... I don't know why they're royal. Oh, maybe because Prince Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so why not head over to manscaped.com and use our code ICMAP for 20% off and free shipping. Free shipping. Get ready for a barbie. Get ready for a festival. Get ready to go to the beach because <laughs> it's going to be a lovely summer. Why not feel lovely down there? Not only will you be helping yourself and helping your bulls, you'll also be helping your good friends, Tom, Ben and Dan, over Like a Murderer podcast. And Jacob, you know, that guy missed out on the deal. And look what happened to him. Not saying, I'm not saying that I'm going to, but maybe... They're all out. Click the link. If you hear some, like, sounds of wet footsteps coming through your house from sweaty bulls. No, not sweaty. Oh, not anymore. Well preserved. Because of Manscaped, you can creep into people's houses. That's what we're saying. Use our code, ICMAP at manscaped.com. Thank you, guys. And back to the case. So Ivan Robert Marco Milat was born on the 27th of December 1944 in Guildford, New South Wales, Australia. So a few things off the bat, Tom. I did promise a history lesson last week in this week's episode. Here it is. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. I don't, I don't know. Interesting facts. 
Guildford is the home of the first ever KFC in Australia. Wow. wow. Yeah. Guildford is not the only Guildford in Australia. Get out of town. There's two of them. And there two of them out of town, yeah. One in New South Wales and one Guildford over in Western Australia. Whoa. Imagine that. I'm really hoping people are still pursuing with this podcast. Yeah, well, in terms of the history, here we go. Ivan was a World War II baby. Okay, baby, what else? And on the day he was born, December 27th, 1944, which was a Wednesday, by the way, the Siege of Bastogne ended with American victory. That famous German submarine was uh, sunk. So you changed it from interesting facts to history lesson because this was particularly dry. <clears throat> well, it was very wet in the ocean when the depth charge was planted. Okay, Ben, thanks for that. No, uh, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it'd probably be more about Guildford than you kind of went on a bit it's of tangent. Not really. There's two of them. Gave you that, and there's a K- and it was the f- first ever KFC in Australia. What are people going to do with that information? Tell the friends, guys. You got to listen to this podcast. I quite enjoyed the KFC fact. To be fair, thanks, Dan. Quite enjoyed it. That's fine. I'll take that. Think looking okay. Ivan was the fifth of fourteen children belonging to Stephen Marco Millet and Margaret Elizabeth Piddleston. The word Piddleston is it's a nice word, isn't it? Yeah. I'm just going to take a trip to Piddleston. It won't be two ticks. It is nice. <laughs> Turns out I went to Shitterston. <laughs> no. Plopston. Stephen was Yugoslavian-born and had lived on the northern Croatian islands for most of his life, but had immigrated to Australia during his late 20s. He later met and married Margaret when she was just 16 years old and Stephen was 34. Mm. Always makes you go. Mm. Yeah. Things that make you go. Mm. and they started trying to have children of their own from the day they were married as we mentioned the couple would go on to have 14 children 10 boys and 4 girls imagine dinner around there yeah every night's a feast eh well it's a necessity Tom Mm. can I have another oh it's all gone (laughs) so love care and attention was spread a little bit thin as were the finances of the family Stephen was a wharf labourer and he would work 12 hours per day every day of the week whilst Margaret and my axe Oh, he said wolf, sorry. <laughs> Whilst Margaret would spend all of her time raising their 14 children, I wonder who worked the hardest. It's a lot of work for both of them, to be fair. A wharf labourer is essentially a port or docklands labourer, so he would work in shipyards on the docks. The mum definitely was working harder. I completely agree with you there. The mother, Margaret, would also run a market garden during the times that the Mealets would live in remote rural farm areas of New South Wales, of which the Mealet children also took turns to help their mother with. Now, a market garden. It sounds fun. It sounds a bit, a little bit, a little bit muddy, a little bit dusty, but what is it? So from what I understand, it is... No, what is it? I don't want to really understand. What, what is it? What it, is it? it? It's essentially, you know, like how people do like garage sales. Right. In America, garage sales. Market garden, basically they're selling all their crops, they're trading. If they go hunting, they'll also um, sell meat and goods and things yeah, like but, that. Yeah, it's basically, I've just looked online. It's, um, Thank you. It's basically just things that are grown on the land and maybe yeah. some manure. Yeah. It's not really like a, a garage sale. Oh, well, kind of. Though. Not really. I mean, the aspect, you know, the aspect of... The... It's more like a garden centre on your land. It's not bad. Not bad. We'll call that then. So, yes, and Margaret helped to run the garden centre on their land. Stephen Milat was an extremely strict man who would often physically and verbally abuse his 14 children. Though he was so often away from the home, a lot like we saw last week in the Richard Ramirez episode. But instead of railway tracks, shipyards, travel. Well, exactly. It's always travel, isn't it? Always travel. Maybe next week it's a bus conductor. The dad. On the buses. Maybe. Could well be. Just trying to think, and I think there was, a, there was definitely travel involved. In the case next week. 
There always has been. There always Very is. Very rarely still murderer. That'd be an interesting... All right. <laughs> Just bodies around him. Every time. <laughs> Come here, I want to say something. You're not going to kill me. Nah, nah, gov. I need to whisper it, though. Yeah. Get really close. Oh, you've got a knife out. Oh, I'm just about to have dinner. KFC's just opened down the road to the first one. For extended periods of time, the father Stephen was away from the home. So when he was away, the 10 Mealit boys regularly misbehaved and didn't receive too much discipline when they did. They would basically run amok and the weaker of the Mealat boys were bullied by the bigger ones, with Ivan being one to assert his dominance very early on. So he was a very large child. Ivan's father, Stephen, would regularly physically abuse Margaret in front of the Mulet children and he would often come home from work exhausted as well as intoxicated, which would frequently result in verbal altercations with Stephen berating Margaret before it eventually became violent. But that is not to say it's all one way. Margaret would also become violent on occasions, but with her children. According to Ivan's brother, Boris, Margaret once hit Boris so hard with a tomato steak that it broke his arm. Like a bamboo stick. Kind, kind of, tomato steak. Or unless that's kind of like a used a plant. Daniel, we're both kind of green-fingered. <laughs> Are you? Sorry, yeah. yeah done What's a, a tomato you've done steak? Once, you? What's a tomato steak? Steak. steak. <laughs> I mean, we're all Googling it. You wrote it, didn't you? Yeah, it is kind of like a metal, kind of like metal bamboo, in a way. It's, some of it's literally bringing up bamboo, but mm. some of them are metal, and they've got framework around them. Okay, so we're going to go with perhaps a bamboo, but maybe a bit more heavy duty. Yeah. Okay. Thick enough bamboo to break a young boy's arm. She also once slashed Boris's arm with a knife when he was misbehaving. There is a quote from Boris about this. I'll just do it in my voice because nearly cut me bloody arm off, Boris said. Go on, do the, do the voice if you want to do the voice. I nearly cut my bloody arm off, Yeah, Boris said. Why is Boris said <laughs> bit? Because the narrator is Boris also... didn't say it afterwards. We <laughs> talk about having the third person. I love that. Boris wants some more chicken on his plate, man. The large Millet family initially lived in Bosley Park before moving to the larger and more rural property in Liverpool. A lot of it, UK city names in, in yeah. Oz. Obviously, some criminals were shipped over from here, over to there. And I think they were just like... Bit of home. Let's call it Liverpool. There's also more interesting names like Wagga Wagga in Australia, which is a bit more. If I was making up a name, I would want to get something a bit bit more out yeah. there rather than just somewhere you came from. Liverpool, both of which are suburbs of Sydney. The family would often live in large properties that were in fairly impoverished areas, including cottages with dirt floors, large sheds and abandoned, decrepit farmhouses. More often than not without sewage or electricity, but with this came a lot of opportunity for Ivan and his brothers to explore the countryside. The Malat boys later learnt to hunt on the property. I get very sort of Fred West vibes from from that kind of image there, in terms of no electricity, no plumbing, big open countryside house, loads of siblings, just... Mm. Hmm. Less incest. That Well, as far as we're aware, yeah. Ivan was introduced to violence and criminal activity from a very early age by his older brothers, who would frequently steal from local shops or bully other children. The majority of the 10 Millet boys were all known to the police before Ivan had even turned nine, with local police visiting the Millet household almost once a month for a two-year period. Wow. You imagine just that family and the police yeah. being like, oh, first. Yeah, if I was in a situation where I had nine brothers, mm. I'd be pretty fearless. I'd make a football team. Yeah. yeah. We'll get the girls involved. Yeah, I have to because there's only nine of us. Yeah. What would you be doing? If I had nine brothers, right, mm -hmm. and just one day someone took a massive dislike to me and called me a name or... Like what? Gormless twat. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. Then that would hurt my feelings. And so Is I'm it hurt the feelings because it's a bit... Close to home? No. Sorry? You said that. Well, no. Well, I just wondered where you were leading me then. No. Gormless twat. Yes. It's okay. mean, isn't it? It's it is nice mean. to say. Yeah. So I'd say, all right, stay there. 
going to get my nine brothers come back. That's pathetic, though. Cowardly. Am I gormless? No, next would rather be cowardly than gormless. Gormless cowardly twat. (laughs) (laughs) Stay there, going to get my nine brothers. Oh, guys, please come. Not only were the Milat children exposed to violence from a very early age, but they also grew up in an environment where knives and guns were used as toys. They would often play shooting games with each other in the back garden and were encouraged to do so by their parents, with Ivan and his brothers making gun ranges. Which I think sounds quite cool. Get a few tin cans, pop, 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 smash, smash, smash. They also pretended to be in the Wild West, and the theme of being a gang of outlaws was something that Ivan regarded, and maybe this is where Tex comes into mm. it slightly, but he regarded that as a really enjoyable way of life. Yeah, I think well, they kind of were the family of outlaws in terms of they weren't abiding by the law and the police were coming, you know, they kind of probably saw themselves as that. I know the, the brothers also would very much have each other's backs and change names if people police were coming because often they would look quite similar as well. Yes, so they'd change yeah. names and basically always give alibis to one another if they got in trouble as well. So I think it's just a very difficult family to deal with at the time. Just as Ivan became a teenager, his younger sister Margaret was struck by a car and Ivan was one of the first in the scene to try and save her. She collapsed, bloodied in his arms as he called for help. She died two weeks later, and this is something that remained with Ivan for the rest of his life. The fact he experienced something in his life the first time that he could not control came as a big shock to him, and something that made him feel physically sick. The element of control is a vital element of Ivan's makeup. Yeah, and this is something that we're going to see again and again as he goes into his teenage years and his and his uh, transitional years and adulthood. But I think not necessarily power, but the idea of control is something that is very, very appealing to him and a big motivator to him, and this particular incident with his younger sister yeah rocked him to the core of the 10 milat boys ivan bill and boris seem to be the most well known to local police due to repeated shoplifting offenses and continued antisocial behaviors coupled with the fact that ivan refused to attend mainstream schools ivan was placed into a residential home for boys to stay for a year when he was just 13 years old another quote from ivan's brother boris he was going to kill somebody from the age of 10 it was built into him He had a different psyche. He's a psychopath and it just manifested itself with, I can do anything, I can do anything. I knew he was on a one-way trip. I knew that it was just a matter of how long. So to acknowledge that or to see that in your brother Mm. when he's 10, it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah. So there are also rumours that Ivan and some of his brothers became involved in animal abuse as teenagers, with one particularly gruesome story involving Ivan bragging about cutting a dog in half with a machete. There were knives and guns all about the house. They had a big, vast countryside property. There were lots of wild animals living around the property, and he would frequently brag to either kill dogs, cats, rabbits. But one particular story involved him claiming that he'd essentially, yeah, split a dog in half with a machete, which is just absolutely hideous. The stay in the residential home for boys did not sway Ivan from old habits. During his mid-teens, he would continue to steal from shops, but he would now also break into homes in order to commit burglaries and petty thefts. Ivan became obsessed with his image, looking smart, dressing sharp, and ensuring that he always presented himself. This made him stand out compared to the rest of his siblings. He also refused to touch alcohol as he felt like he couldn't control himself if he did. So as he grew into his transitional years, he did appear to be quite different from the rest of the Milat children. That's interesting because obviously his dad being very reliant and wanted always to be in control of himself as well. Yeah, that's that's a theme that's going to stay with him for, for the remainder of this case. When Ivan turned 16, he got a job working for Peter Cantrella Fruit and Veg. Peter, who owned the company, really took to uh, young Ivan. He regarded him as an exceptional worker and someone that would work flexibly um, and long hours throughout the day. After working for Peter for just 12 months, Ivan asked Peter for a loan in order to buy a car. 
and without hesitation, Peter loaned him the money and countersigned on a loan agreement that will allow Ivan to make the purchase of this vehicle. Once Peter did that, he pretty much never saw Ivan again. And when he then went to approach the Milat family to, to try and get his money back, because obviously he was left paying mm. off this loan, Ivan and his brothers Michael, Bill and Boris began to try and intimidate Peter and his wife by throwing rocks at their building, turning up outside their shop late at night. And this eventually resulted in a fight between Peter and Ivan with a much older Peter beating Ivan bloody and blue. At around the same time, and this I found really, really interesting because this takes quite a lot of nerve with someone in their sort of mid to late teens. Mm. Around the same time, Ivan and a friend broke into an army barracks to try and steal a safe. But when they were in the middle of trying to do this, they had to flee the scene due to uh, soldiers returning to the property. But again, even to think of, I'm going to go into an army barracks and steal a safe. I wouldn't be thinking, oh, that's going to be a lot of money in that. And also that's a really risky place to go if you're trying to upset anyone. Their job is literally to protect, so... Yeah. Yeah. Ivan was placed into a juvenile facility when he was 17 as a result of being arrested for stealing. Another incident had taken place at this time that Ivan somehow was able to avoid the blame for. Ivan had accidentally shot a taxi driver with his rifle during an attempted robbery, but the driver survived the incident and misidentified the attacker with an innocent passerby, Alan Dillon, who ended up serving five years in a prison for a crime he did not commit. So after serving his time in the juvenile facility, uh, this again didn't sway uh, Ivan's behaviour. If anything, they continued to worsen. And just two years later, when Ivan was 19, he broke into a shop during the middle of the night and stole food, alcohol and some money and then left the premises. Why is he stealing alcohol then? Could be other for people. his other brothers maybe. Mm. So when Ivan turned 20, he was arrested for a break-in and entry, which resulted in an 18-month sentence. And just a month after serving his sentence, he was arrested once again, this time for stealing a car. For someone that likes to be in control and from the outside is a bit of a leader of his siblings, he seems to get re-arrested very, very quickly. He seems to constantly be in, in and out, in and out, uh, which would kind of says to me he's not a good thief. Yeah, and he's not learning his lesson at the same time. I mean, the, again, from, from his late teens, he spends more time in prison than he, than he does outside of prison, which is, yeah. As a result of Ivan continuing to commit low-level crimes throughout his teenage years, he was sentenced to complete two years of hard labour. And just one month after he finished uh, his two years of hard labour, he was sentenced to serve an additional three years in prison for the theft of a car. One thing I did was uh, we've not done too many cases where the criminal has ended up having to serve hard labour. In fact, I think this might be the first one we've done. So my initial thought was that they'd be crushing rocks in a field or tending to fields and raking. A lot of fields. A lot of fields, yeah. But some of the hard labour sentences are pretty intense. Go on, Ben. I want to know more. (laughs) This is more interesting than the KFC fact, I hope. Well, this this particular one that I found, this was based on a a hard labour prison in London over in the UK. It actually involved forcing prisoners to run on a large treadmill, like a cast iron treadmill, like a hamster wheel looking thing. Mm. And the power generated from that would be either connected to pump water or um, connect to a large fan or it was also used to mill corn. The images are quite powerful because it's like a guarded treadmill. It looks like festival toilets, okay, which I've talked about before, I think. But with a prison guard kind of manning each entry and they're basically treading on what looks like steps but they form cogs of a wheel that then generates power. And they would do that for like 12 hours a day. I'm trying to find some in Oz, what they did. I mean, it could be the crushing rocks in a field because that's also hard labour. It could be holes, just digging loads and loads of holes. Could be just digging loads of holes, yeah. Calverts, culverts. 
Ivan's behaviour continued to escalate and his crime started to become more sinister in 1971, when Ivan was 27. He was charged with the kidnap of two 18-year-old hitchhikers, one of whom he had raped based on the threat that he would kill them both if they did not sleep with him. He'd already committed burglaries, thefts, but he decided to escalate his crimes here. And what he did was hang out around a train station in Liverpool and wait for tourists to get off. Mm. And he noticed two women getting off the train that didn't look like they knew where they were uh, and that they were locals of any kind. So he offered them a ride. And he then essentially got them in his car, drove to the woods, where he then at gunpoint explained that if one of them didn't sleep with him, he would kill both of them. Mm. So one of them ended up sleeping with him. He then is driving them, he gets them back in his car, he's then driving them to a, a, a new location where they both plead with him to stop at a petrol station so they can get a drink. Astonishingly, he allows them to get out of the petrol station and walk into the into the station itself. As soon as they get there, they run in, start screaming pointing at him, pointing at his I think car. similar happened in the Catherine Knight case of petrol station. Yeah, it was something similar to that. But um, essentially then, as soon as the girls have got into the petrol station, a load of men from within the petrol station go running out after Ivan, but he drives off. And obviously he was driving a stolen car, so the plates and his appearance really became quite murky after that. And so whilst Ivan was awaiting trial for these particular crimes, he continued to commit a spree of home and shop robberies with some of his brothers before faking his own suicide and fleeing to New Zealand, where he would remain for over a year before returning back to Australia. This fake suicide is pretty casual. Basically, he went to a cliff edge, uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, referred to as the Gap because it was a large cliff edge overseeing the ocean and apparently it was a popular uh, suicide hotspot of the time. And he just left a pair of his trainers at the top of the mm. cliff. Yeah. Do people, when they jump off buildings and stuff, leave their shoes? I don't think that's part of the thinking, is it? No, but that was how he faked his suicide. Mm. Yeah. Canoe Man did a pretty good job of it. He was a bit more... Uh, out. Yeah. Ivan was arrested again in 1974, but the robbery, rape and kidnap cases against him failed at trial and he was acquitted. A lot of this came down to the work completed by the Milat family's lawyer, John Marsden, who is a very famous Australian lawyer, notable for forming part of the Saddam Hussein's defence team when he was captured. And Mr Marsden will come up numerous times in this week's episode. And in the following year, 1975, whilst working as a truck driver for the Roads and Traffic Authority, Ivan, who was 31 at the time, met a woman named Karen, who then, aged just 16, like his mother Margaret, was pregnant with his cousin's child. Despite the fact that Karen had conceived a baby with his cousin, Ivan proposed to her. Yeah. Mm, that is messy, isn't it? This, yeah, and there are a few other things that go on, and that's why the, the Milat waters are a little bit murky the more you look into it. But basically, this woman was pregnant with his cousin's baby. They were still together, but he kind of just went, you're with me now. And they end up getting married. No Milat family members attended the wedding when him and, uh. Uh, when him and Karen got married. And he went on to treat their son, who they named Jason, as if it was his own child. So, again, control. He's just kind of... Very bizarre. Yeah, really, really, really strange. And according to Karen, uh, I mean, the pair would later divorce. But according to Karen, Ivan was said to have been incredibly domineering and very quick to aggression due to issues with jealousy and control. The couple married in 1983, but she left him just four years later in 1987 due to increased cases of domestic violence. They would later divorce in July of 1989. That's just a month before you were born. Thanks. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Man. Thanks. As I mentioned, it does get very murky very quickly when looking into the Milat family and various relationships that took place. Ivan's relationship with Karen wasn't actually the first woman close to the family that he had become uh, romantically involved with. Ivan would later go on to have a daughter, Lenice, whose mother was actually Boris's wife. Ivan had been having an 11-year affair with her behind his brother's back. Yeah. I, I want to say it's, it, it, it's not, this is kind of glamorizing his behavior, but it's a very alpha set of moves that he does, and immoral alpha mm. moves. It's as if he's kind of the, the most domineering the top brother. Dog. The top Yeah, there you go. Yeah, thank you. So Ivan's house was absolutely spotless. He never drank, he never smoked. His garden was looked after meticulously. He had a hobby of building model planes and trucks and painting them camouflage. He would then go on to paint his guns in a camouflage fashion. He had, I think he had ideas of grandeur in terms of him thinking that he's an army kind of top dog, kind of hunter. Yes, um, yeah. Well, he, he even ran his house and his garden in kind of like a military fashion. Mm. Like I imagine every square inch of grass was cut perfectly. No white dog shit on it? No, absolutely no sun-dried white dog shit, no. As an adult, Ivan would dress up like a cowboy, wear a sheriff's badge and call himself Tex. A sheriff's badge, and that is literally a nine-year-old. Yes. Yeah. He took his guns everywhere, including places they were not necessary, like a family barbecue, work, or the post office. Yeah. Very, very big into his guns. And some of the photos of him with guns, like they're quite elaborate looking yeah. guns as well. Like one of Phil's excellent animations shows this, but he's, it looks like he's holding like, and I'm not a gun guy, as we've said, he looks like he's holding a rifle bazooka. A rifle bazooka. Yeah, that's what I'd call it. So Ivan has now gone through a bitter breakdown of his marriage, as well as experiencing another issue that was beyond his control. He decides that his next partners will not be able to escape his control. And with many years of working as a trucker for the Roads and Traffic Authority, Ivan hatches a plan that would remove at the time the belief that Australia was a safe and harmless tourist destination for backpackers. It is here that we now move into our timeline. 
19th of September 1992, two unsuspecting runners set off on an orienteering exercise through the Belango State Forest, completely unaware of what the day holds in store for them. As they wind in and amongst the forest trees, they shockingly stumble across a partially covered corpse in the bush. The body is lying face down in the dirt with the hands tied behind its back. Reveling in shock and disgust and unsure as to whether this is a recently deceased body or not, the runners immediately inform the local police, who quickly take action and embark upon a more thorough search of the wooded area. The 20th of September 1992. Less than 24 hours later and a mere 100 feet away from the first corpse, a second body is discovered by police within the forest. These findings are the beginning of a chilling and disturbing unravelling of events. The police are able to identify the two bodies as those of British backpackers 21-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters. Two friends who are on an adventure of a lifetime, hitchhiking their way from Sydney to the southeast of New South Wales. Upon further investigation, alarm bells began to ring when the police realised that Clark and Walters were last reported seen in April 1992, leaving a King's Cross hostel five months prior to the discovery of their bodies. A forensic examination of the two dead females confirmed that these were brutal and hateful killings. Joanne Walters had been repeatedly stabbed in the chest, neck and back. In fact, the stabbings to her back had been so vicious that it left her spine completely severed. Caroline Clark, on the other hand, had been blindfolded and seemingly marched into the bush. We can only assume that Caroline had a horrific inkling of what was to come, as her attacker forced her to walk blind with a gun held to her head. She had been shot ten times in the head from different angles, which provided the medical examiner on duty with the conclusion that Caroline had been used for target practice. Which is absolutely hideous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, both of those. It's like being killed and used as target practice, being stabbed so hard that it's severed your spine. And at the time, Australia was regarded as pretty much a safe haven, like in terms mm. of backpackers being able to hitchhike, roam wherever they want to go, work their way up and down the coast with no issues. Hitchhikers would be fairly like sort of low-hanging fruit for a serial killer, but Australia didn't really... Well, it's, it's people that the family probably don't know exactly where they are. Exactly. They don't know the areas, they don't know if you're like hoodwinking them by driving them somewhere they don't want to go. Yeah, more uh, often than not, they're on their own or with limited people that yeah. don't know who they are. The one thing to note, though, with those two killings, one has been kind of stabbed in a vicious fit of rage, it seems like. That many stabbings, yeah. severing the spine, and then the other one's been used as target practice. It's two very different yeah, killings. played with, almost. Yeah, but it, it already kind of suggests either it's letting out two forms of fantasy or it's also, yeah. is it two different people? Because yeah. one's stab violent bloody yeah. the other one is more thought out well not thought out but shot it's just too yeah. very it's very different styles yeah, it, or is it someone intentionally trying to have two drastically different mm. uh, which it you know most likely was not but yeah it, it's, it's it's just a very bizarre one as well like obviously tied up and stuff like that but one of them is obviously going to hear the other one being killed before yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely horrific. In early October of 1993, a local man is foraging for firewood in the Belango State Forest when he comes across the skeletal remains of Australian teenagers 19-year-old Deborah Everest and 19-year-old James Gibson. He calls the police who quickly realise that Everest and Gibson's bodies are found in close proximity to where Clark and Walters were discovered the month before. The young couple's last known sighting was in December of 1989, marking a whole four years before the discovery of their unfortunate fate. Their decomposing bodies are found with James curled up into the fetal position with multiple stab wounds all over his body. Just like Joanne Walters, he had been stabbed so brutally that his spine had been left severed too. 
Deborah, on the other hand, had been beaten so badly that her skull was fractured and her jaw was completely shattered. There was also evidence of one singular stab wound to her back. So late October 1993, the police now have a tally of four murders on their hands. Suspicious that the four bodies found may not be the only reported missing backpackers to have faced a gruesome end, the police open the investigation up to a much more intense search. So yes, a massive area, the Belango State Forest, between Sydney and Canberra, and it's kind of, well, altogether the search area that they're looking at is kind of a 15 mile squared radius, Ooh. all of dense woodland. That's going to take a lot of man hours. Mm. It seems that the four bodies they've found have all been within kind of a couple, you know, a mile or two of each other. So it's a lot of work. And at the time, they hadn't experienced a serial killer in that area. Yeah. So this is all new to them as well. The bodies um, seem to have been lazily left there as well. They've not yeah, been yeah. Not exactly hidden. Well, considering one of them had been there for, well, two of them had been there for four years mm. as well and not been found. Yeah, big, big um, operation from the police. Less than a month later, in early November of 1993, the police make another grisly discovery in the Belango State Forest as part of their investigation. This time, the discovery is a single body, and it belongs to that of 21-year-old experienced German traveller Simone Schmidl, who had been on a solo adventure travelling around Australia. Just like Joanne Walters and James Gibson, Simone was found punctured with stab wounds and a fatally severed spine. She was reportedly last seen in January of 1991. Her parents had already reported her as a missing person in both Australia and Germany. Her mother, Jeanette, alerted authorities when Simone failed to meet her as planned on her arrival to Australia. The mother and daughter duo were due to embark on an adventure of their own together before Simone's planned return flight, which was scheduled for March of 1991. Although Mrs. Schmidl was able to gather some initial media attention surrounding the case, she ultimately left Australia defeated and returned to her home country of Germany. Which is just so sad, she must have assumed there was you know, no chance of finding her daughter. She ended up waiting in vain for any news about her daughter to be delivered. Unfortunately, this ended up being the worst possible way and Jeanette Schmidl heard the news of her daughter's brutal murder over the radio before the German police had even been able to notify the family. That's horrible. It's really, That's yeah. real basic, isn't it, as well? Just like, surely... Well, I'm, I'm trying to wonder if, if she, if this Simone Schmidl was on her way to meet her mother, presumably, well, I don't know the distance that, that she was travelling where and when to meet her mother, but if the mother was aware she'd be anywhere near Belango State Forest, I mean, would she have even known well, her she she, she murders? But she wouldn't have known, well, the, which part of the route that she would have gone off on. No, but what I'm wondering is if, if this these four murders... They probably weren't national news, though. Exactly. Or, or, or international news, sorry. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. So if Mrs. Schmidl was over in Germany, would news of four tourists being killed in the Belango Forest even have reached Germany mm. at that point for her to then say, look, my daughter was also gone missing in a similar time frame, maybe a similar location. In the Schmidl of that timeline. Oh. A few days after the discovery of Simone Schmidl in November of 1993, the police's attention is brought to a shallow grave in the same forest area where they find two more missing German nationals. The bodies are that of a young couple, Gabor Neugebauer, 21, and Anja Habscheid, 20. Police identify the killings to the same perpetrator, as the same copycat manner of stab wound to sever the spine had been inflicted upon Gabor. Gabor has also suffered multiple bullet wounds to the head. Anya's killing is probably the most inhumane murder in this particular case, as she was found completely decapitated and her skull was sadly never recovered. 
Gabor and Anya were last seen on Boxing Day of 1991, when they left a Sydney hostel with the intention of travelling on to Darwin before heading back home to Europe. Their families reported them missing two years prior to their bodies being found. Upon discovery of Gabor and Anya, the police ramp up the initial reward money from $100,000 to half a million dollars in the hope that someone will come forward with valuable information. Unbeknown to Australian police, their golden ticket to the case-closing information is sitting almost 16,000 kilometres away, watching reports of murdered backpackers being found in the Belengo State Forest unfold on British television. As he watches from his home in Birmingham, UK, a sickening sense of dread is building in the stomach of Paul Onions. The scene is all too familiar to him, and he finds himself struggling to breathe. Knowing he has to do something, he snatches up the telephone and makes a very important long-distance call to the Australian police. Onion successfully manages to reach the police, where he lays out the experience of his encounter from several years before. So yeah, this this is a kind of a key point in the case. Brummy Paul Onions has seen on the British TV stuff unfolding over the... So it was the, the news was travelling over to the Europe in terms of things yeah. going on over there. But yeah, the sense of dread was building and he had to act on it. Yeah, this guy, this Paul Onions guy is very, very interesting. He's quite like, quite laid back, I feel, considering the experience that he's gone through. Mm. January 1990, Paul details how he had been travelling along Hume Highway from Liverpool, Australia back in January 1990 when he accepted a ride from a seemingly friendly moustache guy called Bill. So he was at a train station, he was waiting, he didn't really, you know, he knew he was going to hitchhike, but he didn't really know, you know, what he was going to do next, he was going to get a cold drink. When he came outside, this Aussie guy called Bill came over to him, started start chatting away and they basically offered him a ride. They discussed where they were going to go and it seemed that they were going to go in the same direction and it all made sense and then Paul didn't, basically didn't believe his luck. He said Bill seemed friendly enough initially, asking lots of questions and engaging in conversation about his travels, but Onions, who is ex-Navy, started to get an uneasy feeling when Bill started on a racist fueled rant. So basically, um, Onions had recently completed a tour um, with the Navy and he f- had some time free and he wanted to basically travel up and down the east coast of Australia. So very laid back, very open-minded and obviously he's he started, he couldn't believe his luck when he started speaking to this Bill guy. Uh, however, as Tom's going to go on to say, it does get very, very dark very, very soon. Yeah, he was he's in early 20s as well, so full of adventure, full of wanting to kind of explore the world. But yeah, things have turned a little bit darker in the, in the car already. So a few miles into the journey, um, he's obviously sensing, oh, I've just been stuck with this guy on this journey. He's, he's started doing this racist rant. This isn't, a, you know, this journey's going to be long as well. Across the, he's, So he's a bit like, Ugh he's sensing a bad vibe I think he's probably thinking of a way to get out and then Bill starts even being a bit more kind of going silent at times and being a bit intense Yeah. so which is even more unnerving and eventually Bill was like he's going to pull over because he wants to get some cassettes out of the back of the car yeah kept looking in his mirror as well yeah kind of gave him a bit of a weird sense as well so he wanted to get some cassettes from his car so he pulled over and instinctively Paul kind of got out of the car as well because he's like this is a bit odd so he got out of the car the side of the road but it's like, definitely easy here and then Bill was kind of say, uh, urging him to get back into the car when he kind of refused a bit Bill then would produce a rope and a gun apparently when Paul saw the the gun he was obviously a bit shocked but when he saw the the rope he got became a lot more scared yeah. a lot more agitated because yeah. he kind of he knew I don't know things in his mind of if he's tied up and he's like yeah he basically had some bad imagery in his mind immediately come there so Bill told him this is a robbery so thinking to himself Paul thought this is it run or die and Paul says he sees on the first opportunity he got and jumped out the car and literally ran for his life he explains how Bill's fire shot after him as he fled but Paul Onions luckily managed to avoid being hit so apparently it's, it's a good technique and he learned this in the army if you've been shot at is to run in zigzags We've, we've spoken about this before, haven't we? Zigzags, like you're playing well, Call of Duty and you don't want to be shot. 
yeah. you run in zigzags. But I would have thought, I guess you do the zigs and the zags different lengths if you're just doing a steady. Yeah, so he managed to kind of just escape. He describes how he managed to make his way back to the main road where he flagged down a local woman, Joanne Berry, who upon seeing the fear in his face put her foot down and drove them to a nearby police station where they filed a report on the incident. Unfortunately, the police did not take the report seriously and no further action was pursued on the matter. I mean, because he's given the name yeah. Bill and no doubt yeah. it was a stolen car, you would have thought, you know, um, Ivan's history. But yeah, very close call there. And I think I think Paul actually carried on his, his uh, holiday. He did, But yeah. he struggled to kind of go over it. He didn't eat much. He was kind of a bit like always on edge. So he left his backpack, which included his passport, loads of personal information oh, wow. in, uh, in Bill's car mm. so yeah i can't imagine knowing having that interaction and then knowing that that guy has all of your your personal details still got the backpack that would be very annoying. and apparently when when this joanne berry was driving off they drove past bill mm. who was smirking at the car yeah that is. scary scary stuff scary stuff fast forward four years later and the police are now keen to speak with paul onions and to take his report much more seriously especially as they now have an idea of who this bill might be thanks to various local tip-offs paul onions is flown to australia and upon being shown a number of photographs selects ivan malat from the photo lineup with ease in May of 1994, now confident that they have their guy thanks to Paul Onions helping to identify their suspect, police make the decision to raid Ivan Milat's home. The house is described as an Aladdin's cave of evidence, after police discover an abundant amount of equipment and belongings that are identified as those of the murdered backpackers, including Simone Schmidl's sleeping bag and personalised water bottle. During his arrest and the search on his house, Malat laughs and mocks the officers on duty, demonstrating an air of arrogance and complete nonchalance for what he has been accused of. On the 31st of May 1994, although he denies having anything to do with any of the murders, Ivan Malat is charged with murders of the seven deceased backpackers. On the 26th of July 1996, after a four-month trial, the court finds him guilty and he is given seven back-to-back -back life sentences, one life sentence for each of the murdered backpackers, and an additional six years for the abduction of Paul Onions without the possibility of parole. Although justice has been done to a certain extent, police still suspect there may be further bodies undiscovered, relating to several other missing backpacker cases. Unfortunately, they are never able to know it as Malak continued to maintain his innocence for the rest of his life. He spends 20 years in jail before dying from cancer of the esophagus and stomach in October 2019, aged 74. When he was dying, they knew he was going to die and pass soon. They did kind of speak to him and interview him. There's some clips of that. They asked him questions, just trying to see if he could, like, if there was any more evidence out there, if other people helped him. He would go on to say the chilling, um, the chilling quote to the police, you could put a blowtorch to my ears, eyes or whatever, and I still can't help you. But he was kind of maintaining that it was more of a case he couldn't help them because he didn't know. He mm -hmm. didn't know any of this because he was still innocent. A lot to kind of unpack as well in terms of the brothers because there's lots of theories out there about the brothers being involved because when they found the evidence they found belongings at Malat's um, house they also found some belongings at some of the brothers houses yeah. which they'd often stay with one another as well wouldn't they they'd live in each other's houses yeah, for different I mean, they're times thick as thieves as they say so I've been watching a lot of um, 60 Minutes uh, Australia programme on, on YouTube recently you bloody love that show I do bloody love that show and I think the presenter's really good and they just don't skirt around the issues Ben they just go straight into it whereas I think Trevor McDonald is horrible at true mm -hmm. crime so they interview Bill and Richard and Bill they found a tent and a sleeping bag of one of the victims at his house and they kind of really push him on that asking him you know why is there and he says I don't know I can't give you an answer which is yeah that is in itself he, he's trying to he's trying to say the police planted it 
and he's just saying all these words. He just he does a really weird thing where he basically says to the interview, going, "Oh, have you never lied on this? Have you never done this?" And the guy's like, "No." And then he just kind of backtracks on this point. Wow. Really wow. odd. And Richard had also been quoted as saying someone before that he said, "Stabbing a woman is like cutting a loaf of bread." as well as there are more bodies out there. He basically didn't completely deny that he said that before. He just said that I don't remember saying it. He just comes across very shifty. We'll play a little yeah. bit, of it, a bit of it here. 1993, when you felt the police moving in, you assisted your brother, Ivan, to get some guns out of his house, didn't you? No, I didn't know the police were moving in. I did not assist him. I just moved some guns away. I mean, would you accept it looks... Just a trifle suspicious. Well, how suspicious does it look if you think that we did it? I went and moved all them guns with so-called people. That why didn't we take that other bit, what the police found? Why didn't we throw that in the river? Can you explain that? Can you explain that to me at all? Why would we move all this stuff that's got nothing to do with it and leave the stuff that the police say has got something to do with it? Why would we leave that there? Are we just stupid? Am I crazy? Am I mad? Maybe I am. I don't know. I'm not an expert either. Yeah, it's just a very strange interview. They make a point at the end of that of that clip as well to say that the they didn't pay them to do the interview. They paid the freelance camera person who sorted it out. But wow. they also okay. but they have a contract, legal contract, where they were like they can't get money, can't go to them. Bill's wife apparently um, provided an alibi for Ivan. She, she, she was in the interview as well. She's claiming ignorance on that bit because she changed a date in a photo album. It was like she had a pencil hand-drawn date. Right, right, right. And she just scribbled out 91 and changed it to 92. And she's just like, oh, have you never why done that? Scri- why scribble out? Why not just I don't put the, uh, turn it into a Z kind of thing? Just rip that page up, a new page in, put a new page. Well, but she was like, have you better. never, if she said to the reporter, have you never changed the date on a photo? It was like, no. And she's like, I want, I once carried a picture of my son, and I had this date written on it, but he wasn't eighteen months old in the picture. It's like, well, that sounds like you're just a bit. Yeah. It's a very, very odd vibe. I highly recommend yeah. watching that interview because it just immediately makes you feel a bit like this. There's a weird. I, I honestly think, as I said, mentioned earlier on, with the different forms of killing and the equipment yeah. found at his house as well. I think it was Richard and Ivan, 100%. Really interesting. Well, the, the, there were two distinct patterns, weren't there? One that was the target practice and one that was much more physically brute force, yeah, yeah you know, severing the spine. So initially they were thinking that, the, you know, this isn't a serial, this isn't, these murders aren't connected, it's, mm. it's two separate serial killers or it's the work of a group. But, I mean, we talked about um, the vital inclusion of uh, Paul Onions positively identifying Ivan, but they were watching him for a number of weeks before they actually uh, decided to raid his house. So they were surveying the Milat house, and whilst watching uh, over the house, police learnt that Ivan had recently sold his silver Nissan Patrol four-wheel drive vehicle almost immediately after the discovery of the bodies of Clark and Walters was uh, made to mainstream media. They also confirmed that Ivan had not been working on any of the days that were linked to the probable date of attacks. So there was a couple of kind of circumstantial evidence collected against Ivan there. Also then the weapons retrieved from his house lined up perfectly with the ammunition used and found in, in, in some of the victims' bodies. So there was almost an overwhelming amount of, of evidence against Ivan, but like you said, there definitely is a lot of people that believe that the other brothers were involved in this as well. When they did raid Ivan's house as well, due to the fact that they hadn't really experienced anything quite like this before, and mm. also due to the fact they'd been made aware that he, he was a guy that uh, was kind of obsessed with weaponry, it actually 
took 50 police officers to surround his house and apprehend him. Oh, wow, because they yeah. thought it might be a bit, yeah, exactly. yeah. Exactly. As well, the camouflage stuff, they wouldn't know, you know which way he's coming. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's exactly right. Don't mm. tread on my lawn. Where are you? <laughs> um, the trolley's back. <laughs> at the time that Ivan stood trial for the charges against him, his brothers Richard and Walter were tried at the same time in relation to weapons, drugs and stolen items that were also found during the raids of Ivan's home as well as various family members' home. So there's a lot going on here. Further evidence as to why a lot of people believe that more than one of the Milat brothers were involved. Throughout the trial as well, despite overwhelming evidence against him, Ivan was confident that he would be found innocent. In numerous phone recordings um, made available to the Australian Broadcasting Commission, he is heard saying, My basic defence in my trial is that it wasn't me. I don't know who did it. It was up to them to prove my guilt, not for me to prove my innocence. Yeah, I've heard other podcasts say a lot of it circumstantial evidence. Unless the police did plant things in the houses. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it sounds... It, it doesn't seem that there was a ton of pressure compared to other cases we've covered for the police to find this person yeah. responsible. And there weren't like... Ma I mean, there was a large number of victims, obviously, but it wasn't mounting, mounting. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned earlier on, the expanse of that forest. Yeah. There could be, easily be numerous bodies out there. The amount of wildlife out there. Exactly, yeah. And and they said about the brothers, a few of them have said that there'd be more bodies. He was travelling around at this period of time. There could easily be more and more. And the other thing, the other eerie thing about this case, which um, I didn't know much, too much about, was that the murder seems to run in the family, or at least mm. a kind of a copycat. Essentially, uh, Matthew Muleman, who is uh, Ivan's nephew, he basically idolised his uncle and like he kind of loved the infamy of him and, and all these things. Obviously, he's grown up around the family. But he would go on to commit a murder in the Belango Forest himself. Essentially, he went there with a group of friends. And one of his friends, David Octoloni, was on this trip with him. Matthew very much idolised his uncle and he'd always go on about his uncle. He'd often be sat with his friends and have a little flick knife, just kind of spinning it around. Just very kind of eerie and nerving things. It was David Octoloni's birthday and they went there to kind of like celebrate, smoke some weed and have a beer or whatever. They drove into the forest and in a very kind of planned fashion. Matthew got out of the car, went to the back of the boot no. and he basically got this it was a medieval axe um, out horrifying. the back. Apparently his friend Cohen Klein knew about what was going to happen as well. So essentially he got out of the car, he asked David to come out of the car and he basically started shouting at him, threatening him, saying, get in my business and all this stuff. Just kind of very nonsensical, just stuff he was shouting at him it was all recorded on the phone as well god he made um david lay on the floor and then he basically um he hit him on the head with the axe Jeez. and then they covered david's body with leaves and branches and drove back yeah it was filmed on the phone and he was very nonchalantly kind of bragging about it and this was a friend he, he killed a friend essentially he changed his name back to to be Malat. he then followed the kind of pattern of going to that forest yeah so this is in november uh, 2010 he was very unremorseful he actually wrote a um poem called your last day when this is when he's in kind oh. of in prison or and he wrote saying click clack hear that stopping in the middle of the track are you getting nervous in the back should be cunt you're getting whacked jesus yeah so he, he it goes on and on yeah he's it's completely unapologetic yeah uh, it seems a completely senseless murder of one of his friends yeah that's messed up. Yeah, it's it is really really messed up, and yeah, it's just it's literally just wanting to be like his uncle. Essentially, he was sentenced to forty three years. Well, there are there are still people to this day that believe that Richard Milat was uh, the main person responsible for these murders. And just to go back to the Milat boys when they were known in their community as they were growing up throughout the trial, 
Ivan's defense basically argued it was Richard and that Ivan had been framed. But over 145 witnesses were called to the stand to kind of provide various testimonies about Ivan and about Richard. Mm. 145 different people. During his first day in prison, Ivan was beaten by another inmate. And almost a year later, he made an escaped attempt alongside a convicted drug dealer and former Sydney councillor, George Savas. The plan for their escape ultimately failed and Savas was actually found dead in his cell the next day, having hanged himself. And as a result of the escape attempt, uh, Ivan was transferred to a maximum security prison. He also, in, in prison, he, he went on hunger strike because he wanted a PlayStation. Lost 25 kilograms there. On the 26th of January 2009, Ivan cut off his little finger with a plastic knife with the intention of mailing it to the High Court of Australia to force an appeal. He was taken to a hospital to receive treatment, a high security hospital, however, was returned to the prison. I don't believe that the finger was ever posted. However, that wouldn't be the first instance of Ivan trying to harm himself. He also, uh, in 2001, on numerous occasions, swallowed razor blades, staples and other metal objects. Staples not going to be fun to pass, but... I'd rather pass staples than razor blades. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I think oh, sorry. if the razor blades haven't... Oh yeah, and yeah, with the with the PlayStation, he, he, the the guard basically said, even if you got one, he wouldn't be able to play one without his finger that he's cut off. He seemed to be very aware. It's me. He did have a lot of people sympathising for him, thinking that he was wrongly convicted. The thing in my head is, I just feel like that there could well be another brother involved in in some parts, unless Ivan had planted things around his brother's house. But he That's never, it, he yeah. never, uh, like we said, they were thick as, thick as when the little and he didn't, they would always not rat, rat on each other and not do those things. So why would he, what would the benefit be of doing that? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the only other thing that is said to have pointed it to more towards Ivan's guilt than any of the brothers is that he is said to have told his mother, Margaret, shortly before her death, um, that he was in fact responsible for all of the backpacker murders. But again, at this point, it's still word of mouth. It's who you believe. Ivan Milat's murders also inspired the movie Wolf Creek, the horror movie, which is claimed in the opening sequence of the movie to be based on a true story. And now it's time for some light relief after that, uh, for some lookalikes. What does it look like? That looks like a bit like that. It's a bit like this. Ben, do you want me to go first this week, or do you want to go first? I've got, you you I've, go first. I've, I've, mine, I had the honours last week. Mine, I'm not, I'm not obsessed. I'm not overly happy with mine. Yeah, I've but, got I've got two I'm not happy with, one I'm very happy with, and one that's going to annoy you. Okay. I love how you preempting the, 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 the nuisance that you'll be to me. Okay, one of him holding that, I think you called it bazooka rifle. The bazooka rifle. Rifle bazooka. I think so. he looks like Jermaine Clement. Yeah. Um, the one of him laughing in the car, I, I, I keep seeing Mr. Burns, but I don't think that's a great shout, but it's something of his, this, the irk of his face. Humanised. Yeah, the humanised one. Burns. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know yeah. which photo you mean as well. The other one was, he has, because he's quite a bit of an overbite. There's a bit of Freddie Mercury about his mouth ah. and, the, and the tight vest and yeah. the moustache. But yeah, I don't think that's as far as I go with that. Had Freddie as one of mine that I wasn't happy with. Yeah, I'm not happy with it massively. And in this one with the other big gun, a bit like Hugh Jackman. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But um, I'm going to also do one for his prick nephew. Yes. Um, I think he looks a bit like the actor Brett Kelly from Bad Santa. Oh. I think that's like... Wow. <laughs> that, that's the strongest... Wow. It's just curly blonde hair, really. Very good, though. Yeah, they've got similar faces. Okay. I think, yeah. I, the Brett Kelly one. 
pretty impressed with that. So I, I, at the time of doing the research, I had my two lined up. There was, I just was looking at one photo and was like, I recognize this face, I recognize this face. Just as about to set off this morning, it hit me. Oh, God. So I'm going to leave my good one oh. that hit me until the end. I'll start with retention. my poor That's ones. retention there. That's retention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my first one is Daniel Day-Lewis, which is one of the ones I'm not that happy with. Yeah, essentially a moustache. Yeah, well, I'm going to maintain the essentially a moustache theme <laughs> and mention that I also feel there's a little bit of Freddie Mercury in that particular photo. Yeah, it's the, the overbite is part yeah, of it, isn't it? Yeah. Then I was basically, I stayed on a kind of a moustache theme mm. and I found this Fred on a website called India TV News. And the Fred was called No Cricketers in Dynamic Moustaches. And for the audio listeners... Head over to our YouTube page. You're going to love this. I've got four or five Ivans. Oh my God, uh, so let me just show you some of them. There's two of them right there. Two Ivans. I mean, these could all be Milats. This is literally just territory of just memory moustaches. And then I'm going to get to my favourite one, which I think might win it, although your, your last one there. I remembered it just before setting off. He looks exactly like the Yorkshire Ripper hoaxer, Wearside oh. Jack, in that poto. That poto? In that poto, yes. The Isn't there another one of Rear Subjects? I, when you said that, I thought it looked more like it than it does in that picture. Oh, those two photos, I was like, wow. Gingham shirt and pose, yeah. Tersh. That Rear was the one I was happy Jack. with, yeah. Wearside Jack, John Samuel Humble. Yeah, no, interesting. Interesting yeah. one there. Uh, yeah, there's lots of uh, conspiracy theories out there about the brothers and what possibly could have happened, moving guns and things like that, but... Mm -hmm. Is many a rabbit hole you can fall down with this case. That's the case of Ivan Millet, the backpacker killer. Yeah, very, very interesting one indeed. I can see why many of you requested it. Definitely, definitely, yeah. But bizarre set of circumstances. I think there's still theories pointing in the guilt party, the mm. innocence party. I, I could see, I kind of side with you in that I feel like potentially there were other family members yeah. involved. But then it's very easy for them to say, oh yeah, mum was passing away and he admitted it all yeah. because that ties it in a nice bow it's done no one has to well, yeah, there's, there's no proof of it is it yeah even the mum can't back it up that's it yeah but yeah very interesting one thank you so much for everybody that's been listening and watching and telling people about us we appreciate it a ton we've been in America we've been in Australia next week we're coming home Ooh, that's all I'll say about that that's about <laughs> as much of a clue as you're going to get and also wherever you listen to us don't forget to leave us a little review it really does help us and help the pod a little five star if you like I think it's five star worthy it would be very much appreciated and if you're watching us on YouTube why don't give us a little like and a little comment yeah we love to mean a lot a little bit of a chat yeah we're pretty good at replying and liking things on there. We also, if you're interested, uh, have uh, various social medias, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. At Could Murder a Pod is where to find us. We've also got a merch store, icmap.store. Um, get all of your I Could Murder a Podcast uh, goodies over there. And we also have a Patreon page at the point of recording. We have about 80 episodes over there. That's a lot. That's a lot of content. I wouldn't yeah. even bother. Yeah. It's too much to do. It's a lot to do, yeah. It's a lot of work. And every week there's been... Like one added to oh, it. No. Uh, what's that voice? Oh no. <laughs> it's the Malibu man. Uh, don't leave me, Harold. But yes, there's plenty over there. It's cost about four quidish a month. Four quidish a month. About a quid a quid nip. Quid a nip. And you also, just by being a Patreon or a Patreoni, you unlock a, a nice little discount for the yeah, store. So do. you win. And we win, and everyone wins. So Everyone's a winner, baby. Yes, they are. That's the truth. Yeah, Jacob is sporting a hat and a lovely T-shirt. Yes. There. Right, mate. Say hello. 
He hasn't jumped the chair this week, so that's good. If you don't remove those hands, there's a high likelihood you'll never use them again. We're not to be going touching Jacob. <laughs> don't touch Jacob. <laughs> I believe we've established that. Yes. <laughs> anyway, guys, like we always say. We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, um, unless it's ooh, calling yourself Tex when you've got a perfectly good name. Ivan. Um, and the Sheriff Tex. Yeah, Doesn't even work. Paintings in camouflage. Sheriff sure. Um, taking your cousin's partner, uh, pregnant partner, in fact. Don't do that. Yeah. Right. Um, See him later. Cut your finger off. Melata, melata. Mil- it's pretty good. Melata. Let's go and have a melate now. But... Alright. <laughs> Two pip. Although Mrs. Schmid, although Mrs. Sch- it's Mrs. Schmid, although Mrs. Smidgel. Schmidl. Although Mrs. Schmidl was able to gather more... You changed it. Schmidl. Although Mrs. Schmidt... You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert at Boston Sound. Edited by Ben Bonsey. Additional research and timelines by Lauren McKenna-Parker. Additional voiceover by Daniel LePayne. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. And theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Music and Spotify. For additional exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash pod. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.